You please take up the uh, church Bible in the pew in front of you. Our reading is composed of two parts this evening, page 737, Isaiah 50, verses 4 to 9, and page 740, Isaiah 52, verse 13, to the end of 53. So, 737, Isaiah 50, verses 4 to 9, and then if you could be ready to turn to 740 at the end of that, that would be good. Isaiah 50, verses 4 to 9. The Sovereign Lord has given me an instructed tongue to know the word that sustains the weary. He wakens me morning by morning, wakens my ear to listen like one being taught. The Sovereign Lord has opened my ears, and I have not been rebellious. I have not drawn back. I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard, I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. Because the Sovereign Lord helps me, I will not be disgraced. Therefore have I set my face like flint, and I know I will not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who then will bring charges against me? Let us face each other. Who is my accuser? Let him confront me. It is the Sovereign Lord who helps me. Who is he who will condemn me? They will all wear out like a garment. The moths will eat them up. And then page 740, Isaiah 52, verse 13. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man and his form marred beyond human likeness, so will he sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths before of, because of him. For what they were not told, they will see, and what they have not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, 
he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray as we start together. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. Help us now as we approach these deep and rich truths to be humble, to listen, to engage, and to open our hearts, our minds, and our ears to what you have to say to us this evening. Let us go from this place knowing you and your word better so that we may more clearly live for you now. Amen. Well, I wonder, what's one of the last things you want to hear when you're going through a really tough time. I think one of the most unhelpful phrases that people can so often throw out there without really thinking is, I know what you're going through. An out-of-touch parent, an impatient teacher, an insincere politician, too many of those around, an insensitive friend, a throwaway remark when actually they don't know. They don't know your specific suffering, your loss, your hurt, your loneliness. We have all known suffering of some sort, some more than others, but we all have gone through some form of pain, loss, heartache, financial struggle, illness or rejection. And in those times, we can feel so isolated, can't we? We bear the heavy burden of suffering and we feel like no one else really knows what we're going through. We all go through suffering. Some of us here tonight may be going through a particular time of suffering right now. How do we cope? How do we deal with suffering? Well, here in Isaiah 50, 52 and 53, we see God's suffering servant. Here, as was the case last week when Tim first introduced us to God's servant, we see what God's people are called to be. In chapter 50, we have the third of Isaiah's servant songs, poems about God's servant. And it's here that we see that God's people are called to be his suffering servant. Israel, God's people in Isaiah's time, and Christian believers here today, are called to be his suffering servant. And we're given a description of the suffering servant in verse 4 to 9 of chapter 50. So, in the face of suffering, in the midst of hurt, how do we respond? In verse 6 and 7, we see that this servant is beaten, abused, mocked, spat at. This servant knows great suffering. And yet in the midst of all this, the servant, verse 4, instructs and sustains the weary. In the midst of this suffering, verse 5, this servant hasn't been rebellious and hasn't turned away. 
but instead has been completely obedient to God. Despite this suffering, the servant's trust in God is unshaken. Verse 7, the servant knows that God is in control, that God is sovereign. The servant has a determined trust. And in verse 8 and verse 9, we see that this servant, who is greatly suffering, is completely confident in God's victory. Who will bring these charges against me? Who is my accuser? Who will condemn me? No, it is the sovereign Lord who helps me. The servant has a certain victorious confidence. So in summary then, this servant sustains others as he listens to God, is obedient to God, is determined to trust God, and has a victorious confidence in God. All whilst in the midst of suffering, intense suffering. How many of us can say that when we're going through real suffering, that we've supported others as we perfectly listen to God? How many of us can say that when we're coming to terms with the death of a loved one, facing the reality of that diagnosis, dealing with the hurt of rejection and loneliness, how many of us can say that we perfectly trust God, that we're perfectly obedient to him in every situation? I certainly can't. No, if you're anything like me, you'll be quite the opposite of that. In those times and at those places in our lives, when we're in the middle of serious suffering, do we have a real sense, a, a confidence in God's victory? If we're being honest, the answer all too often is no, we don't. Sadly, we hear all too regularly of those who've experienced loss, those who are being diagnosed with an illness and as a result have given up on their faith. Their suffering has driven them away from God rather than towards him. And it was the same with God's people in the Old Testament. How did Israel respond to the suffering when the Assyrian Empire came defeating, destroying and conquering? Well, we've seen from the series so far, and Tim mentioned it earlier, that they forgot God's goodness to them. They forgot his trustworthiness. And so they rejected them, rejected him even, in their time of need. Instead of putting their trust in God, they turned to the other nations around them. They put their trust in them and their idols. The reality is, no one here and no individual in all of God's history, in all of God's people, has suffered and remained perfectly obedient to God, perfectly trusting and confident in God. How many of us can say that we have perfectly suffered? No one can. There is no one who suffers like this. There is no one except one. Only one can claim to be God's perfect suffering servant. And we hear more about him in our second passage, in Isaiah 52 and 53. At the end of chapter 52, we're presented with a bit of a puzzle. In verse 13, we're shown this glorious figure. He'll be raised up and exalted. 
But then at the same time, this figure of glory is revealed in verse 14 to be disfigured and marred in the most appalling way. How can this be the same person? Well, we have here one of the most famous and well-loved passages in the Bible. This, the fourth and final servant song, points us to God's perfect suffering servant with amazing clarity. In these verses, we're shown the only one who has suffered perfectly, and that's Jesus. He is the one who is marred, beaten up beyond human likeness. But it's at that point that he's glorified. He's lifted high, exalted, as he suffers on the cross, when he is disfigured, suffering and dying. This is the suffering servant who is described in 53 verse 2 as the tender shoot, a description that Isaiah has used before, the shoot from the stump of Jesse, that might ring a few bells, the one who would come from the line of David out of Israel and would save his people. The trouble is, this looks all wrong to the unbelieving world. How can God's big game play, his victory, his salvation plan, look like this? Salvation through suffering? It's not what you would expect. I wonder if any of you watched the Oscars uh, this year. You may have heard about the big upset with the wrong envelope being given and all the hoo-ha that went on along with it as the wrong film was announced as the best picture. But amongst the big mix-up, there was still all the glam, all the jewellery, all the bow ties, the ridiculous amounts of money spent on the suits and dresses. Hollywood's best and most attractive on display. But we come to this passage, and there's none of that here with the suffering servant. In fact, it's quite the opposite. We're told that he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. And in fact, not only did people find him unattractive, but we also see that, verse 3, he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. This is God's perfect suffering servant. And we see three things in this well-known and much-loved passage. We see how the servant suffers, why the servant suffers, and the victory the servant achieves in suffering. Firstly then, how the servant suffers. As I've said, this is a well-known passage to many of us, and perhaps these are some of your favourite verses in the whole of the Bible. It is a great passage but it's also a really horrible one as well. If it was a film, you can imagine the warning on the back, extreme violence, torture scenes, graphic suffering. This is no bedtime story, let's be clear. We're talking about a real human being going through real suffering. Isaiah wrote this down, but 750 years later, we see those details actually taking place on the cross. How does this servant suffer? We see in these verses in Isaiah that he was despised, rejected, familiar with suffering, pierced, 
crushed, wounded, oppressed, afflicted, dying with the wicked. And then he's in the grave and he's dead. The suffering is real. And of course, God's servant, Jesus, suffered all those things as he went to the cross. Despised by the crowds, the religious leaders, the Roman officials, rejected by his own followers, his own disciples, pierced by the nails driven into his hands and his feet, crushed under his own body weight as he suffocated on the cross, wounded as the spear pierced his side, dying with the wicked between two criminals, murderers, terrorists either side of him. And then he's dead in the grave, buried in the tomb. Amazingly, in all this, the suffering servant remained silent. Isaiah writes, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. And in Matthew's Gospel, we read these words. When he, Jesus, was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, Can you hear the testimony they're bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. In Jesus and the cross, we clearly see God's servant and the suffering he endured perfectly. And there's a great poem that describes what we've seen here. It's about four minutes long, but it's so, so helpful in understanding these amazing, amazing truths. It's called The Long Silence. Let me read that for you now. At the end of time, billions of people were scattered on a great plain before God's throne. Most shrank back from the brilliant light before them, but some groups near the front talked heatedly, not with cringing shame, but with belligerence. Can God judge us? How can he know about suffering? Snapped a pert young brunette. She ripped open a sleeve to reveal a tattooed number from a Nazi concentration camp. We endured terror, beatings, torture, death. In another group, a black man lowered his collar. What about this? He demanded, showing an ugly rope burn, lynched for no crime but being black. In another crowd, a pregnant schoolgirl with sullen eyes said, why should I suffer? It wasn't my fault. Far out across the plain, there were hundreds of such groups. Each had a complaint against God for the evil and suffering he permitted in his world. How lucky God was to live in heaven where all was sweetness and light, where there was no weeping or fear, no hunger or hatred. What did God know of all that man had been forced to endure in this world? For God leads a pretty sheltered life, they said. So each of these groups sent forth their leader, chosen because he had suffered the most. A Jew, a black person, a person from Hiroshima, a horribly deformed arthritic, a thalidomide, a thalidomide child. And in the centre of the plain, they consulted with each other. At last, they were ready to present their case. It was rather clever. 
Before God could be qualified to be their judge, he must endure what they had endured. Their decision was that God should be sentenced to live on earth as a man. Let him be born a Jew. Let the legitimacy of his birth be doubted. Give him a work so difficult that even his family will think him out of his mind when he tries to do it. Let him be betrayed by his closest friends. Let him face false charges. Be tied, tried by a prejudiced jury and convicted by a cowardly judge. Let him be tortured. At last, let him, see, let him see what it means to be utterly and terribly alone. Then let him die. Let him die so that there can be no doubt that he died. Let there be a great host of witnesses to verify it. As each leader announced his portion of the sentence, loud murmurs of approval went from the throng of people assembled. And when the last had finished pronouncing sentence, there was a long silence. No one uttered another word. No one moved. For suddenly, all knew that God had already served his sentence. You see, God knows. God knows our suffering. Unlike that out-of-touch parent, that impatient teacher, the insincere politician or the insensitive friend, God really does know what we're going through. At the cross, God says to each and every one of us, I know what you're going through. He has suffered all that we could ever suffer. He has gone through every trial that we could ever go through. He knows. He has experienced it all himself. He has suffered. When we look to the cross, we can know that God knows, that God cares. But it goes much further than that. Because if it ended there, then in some ways it would almost be worse. Great, God knows what it is to suffer. So what? How does that help me with my pain, my hurt? And it forces us to ask the question, why? Was this all just some terrible mistake? Why did the servant suffer in this way? Well, as we move on to our second point, look at verse 4 to 6, as we see why the servant suffers. So far in this passage, we've uh, just been spectators to this suffering, wondering why this marred individual went through all this, wondering whether or not he deserved what he got. But here in these central verses, we see that we're not just spectators but that we're involved. And here it gets deeply personal. The why of the suffering becomes clear as we're showing that the pain was our pain. The suffering was our suffering. He hung on the cross, not a result of anything that he had done. No, he suffered for us, for our sins. Look at verse 5 on the screen. He was pierced. Why? For our transgressions for all the wrong that we've done. He was crushed. Why? For our iniquities, for our moral failings, the evil in our hearts. Just take a moment to look at the screen, and again, I'll I'll flick the slides over, where all the places were said, our, us, insert your own name there instead. 
Just take a moment to read those verses out in your mind with your name uh, where the line is. It's so personal, isn't it? So, so personal. Last month, Christian unions up and down the country put on events weeks where they gave out free lunches and ran evangelistic events and gave talks tackling big questions people have about God and Christianity. And so often during those weeks, the question of how can a good God allow suffering comes up. And it's a question so many people seem to have. Maybe it's one that you've asked yourselves when facing personal uh, suffering in your own lives. But it's not, how can a good God allow suffering? As we look at these truths here, we see that it's God is such a good God to allow his son to suffer for us. He suffered because of you. He suffered for you. And we see in these verses that we come to Jesus full of sin, full of hurt, but we leave with peace and healing. What kind of a deal is that? I've got my family visiting here this evening, and they well know that I don't have a particularly great history with mobile phones. I don't know how you treat your mobile phones, but perhaps you've once or twice accidentally dropped them. My last three mobiles have all ended up looking like this. You can see there's a good, nice crack on the screen there. Sad times for that one. And that's only just one of the three phones I could have shown you this evening. What we're looking at here in these verses is like me taking my old cracked phone to the car phone warehouse. There are other phone retailers available. And asking for an exchange. Sure, they say. Well, take that off your hands. And instead, in return, what do I get? Well, I get a brand new iPhone. I don't have to pay anything for it. You don't have to work in the car phone warehouse to know that's never going to happen. What we're looking at here in these verses is like, like that. And yet, much more important than an upgrade on your phone is where you are in the eyes of God. We come to Jesus broken, guilty, full of sin, and we leave that behind at the cross. And in return, we're given Jesus' perfect obedience. His righteousness is ours. At the moment, in the 11 to 18's youth groups on Friday nights, we're going through a series called Shun Words, Big Truths with, sorry, Big Words with Big Truths. And towards the start of this term, we looked at the Shun word substitution, where we recognise that Jesus takes our place as our substitute. He takes our guilt, our suffering, and gives us his perfect life. So if we've gone to the cross, then God looks at us you've gone to the cross and he looks at you and he sees Jesus, his perfect servant, his spotless son. That's why he suffered. That's why he died on the cross, for me and for you, so that we could be saved. Well, when we look to the cross, we see that God knows our suffering, 
And we see that he suffered to save us. But we also see here God's great and complete victory. And this brings us on to our third and final point, the victory the servant achieves in suffering. In Mel Gibson's uh, The Passion of the Christ, he depicts the brutal killing of Jesus, the whipping, crushing, the beating, the spitting. It's horrendous. It portrays really well the suffering But the big problem with that film for me is that it just leaves you pitying Jesus. This poor man who suffers so greatly, what a waste. What a waste of an innocent life. And that's kind of in line with the Muslim view of Jesus. That this man, this pitiable, bloody mess, nailed to a cross, cannot, cannot be God. He's just another prophet. What the film The Passion of the Christ doesn't pick up on nearly enough is the victory that is achieved through this suffering. Don't pity this man on the cross. He knowingly went there. Verse 10 of chapter 53, it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. He suffers, he dies, but he rises again. Verse 11, after he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. And it's definitely worth appreciating what we've actually been looking at tonight. As we sit comfortably here this evening, maybe a little bit too comfortably, give ourselves a little stretch. We have before us God's great salvation plan. From Isaiah's prophecy to 700 years later, to Jesus' great sacrifice that fulfills that prophecy. This is all God's salvation plan. Plan A, since before time even began. This is a great triumph, the greatest victory, as we see sin atoned for and death defeated. So as we close this evening, what do you make of all this? How about you? 2,000 years ago, was it just another hot day with the brutal death of some pitiable man on the side of a road? Or was it the most wonderful day in all of history? The day promised to us through the prophet Isaiah. The day when God's perfect servant, God's son, suffered in our place so that ultimately we wouldn't have to. What do you make of this plan If you were writing a story or a script, I don't think you or I would lay things out like this. It looks ridiculous. It looks weak. Maybe even stupid. Certainly hopeless at times. But we need to recognise this evening that through all this, God alone knows our suffering. Truly knows our suffering. That through all this, we can come to Jesus for life. Come to the servant Come to the servant who chose to suffer and die for you and have peace, freedom from guilt and sin and ultimately have victory even over death. And for those of us who have gone to him, have been forgiven and saved, are we holding on to that hope of heaven that we see here tonight? 
You won't find any promises in the Bible about how Christians will be free of all pain, free of all hardship, all loss. No. But every page in the Bible points us to the promise that through Jesus, one day, we can be free of all suffering and live in perfection with him forever. It's that that we need to cling on to in the good times when life is relatively easy and in the rubbish times when life is messy, hard and confusing. In those times, we need to look back to the suffering servant, look back to the cross and see there the end of all our sin, the end of all our guilt. And one day, an eternal end to death and suffering. With that in mind, with what the suffering servant went through in mind, we can look to follow in his footsteps. We can look to follow his example of suffering, suffering well in the here and now, knowing that in the cross we have hope, victory, and eternal life. So have you gone to Jesus, the perfect suffering servant for life? Are you holding on to these promises and allowing them to shape your lives now? Are you following in his footsteps, looking to suffer well as we remember the cross that gives us hope for here and now? Looking to the suffering servant, look to the cross and see that God knows, God saves, and God has the victory. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so, so much that we are not alone, that we do not have to suffer alone, but that we can truly and deeply know that you are a God who knows our suffering because you came to this earth, you lived and you died on the cross. You did that for us, to save us, to make us right with you. But thank you, God, that you didn't stay dead, that you rose your son to life again and that we can have that sure hope of an eternity without death and without suffering through you. Help us to hold on to these deep truths this evening, in the week to come, and in those times in the future when we will face suffering ourselves. Help us to hold on to them for you and for your glory. Amen.